Good morning, church. This morning we're reading from two different books. The first one being Genesis 14. I'll read uh, verse 17 to 20. And then Hebrews... Excuse me. And then Hebrews 7, uh, uh, verse 1 to 3. So starting in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet, uh, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. I didn't expect to be in the pulpit quite this often. (laughs) Let's just take a moment to pray. Oh God, you commanded light to shine out of darkness. And so shine into our hearts, we pray, to give the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and honor forevermore. Amen. Well, I wonder if there are any Bible scholars in the congregation this morning um, who might be able to tell me, um, what is the Old Testament passage that's most frequently quoted in the New Testament? Any guesses? Psalm 110? You're right. (laughs) You ruined my sermon. (laughs) No one was supposed to know that answer. I was going to suggest that some people might have thought it would be uh, something like um, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There might have been some prophetic scholars who might have thought it would be uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. But you got it, Brian. It's Psalm 110, uh, verses 1 and 4. You know, there are something like 300 quotations from the Old Testament that can be found in the New Testament, but it's those verses that are found most frequently. And here's what they say. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the first place where we find these words uh, is in the first three Gospels, in each one of them. 
They come up in the course of one of those nitpicking encounters between Jesus and the religious authorities. And we hear them not on the lips of Jesus, but on the lips of his opponents. And they use them to try to debunk what people are beginning to say about Jesus, that he is the promised Messiah. And yet clearly they recognize these verses as a messianic prophecy. Now the next time they come across them is when they're quoted by Peter. And they're found in the middle of his sermon on the first day of, on the day of Pentecost. And he was addressing the large crowd that had gathered in the street when they heard Jesus' followers praising God in what they recognized as their own languages. And after citing these same verses from Psalm 110, Peter proclaimed, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And this in turn brings us to the letter to the Hebrews, which we've been following now since the beginning of the year. And so I'll forgive you if you don't remember way back um, in chapter one, where this text is quoted yet once again. And there, pointing to Jesus, the author asks the question, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then finally, we come to the verse immediately preceding the passage that we read this morning. It's Hebrews chapter six, verse 20. And there the author writes of Jesus as having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Anyone? Melchizedek? Who was he? Well, I was scratching my head this past week trying to come up for a title for this sermon, and uh, one title I came up with is, Who is the heck? Who the heck is Melchizedek? <laughs> um, <clears throat> And perhaps that's exactly the question you're asking yourself now. Well, the answer comes in the three verses that makes up, make up this morning's passage from Hebrews. The author takes us far back uh, into the mists of history. In fact, to chapter 14 in the book of Genesis. Now here's the scene. The rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah had been trounced in battle by the rulers of some of the neighboring settlements. And among those whom they took as captives was Abraham's nephew, Lot. Well, when Abraham found out about it, he pulled his men together and staged an overnight raid on those two rulers and their forces. The result was that Lot was made a free man once again, and Abraham was able to forge a treaty with the rulers, uh, ruler of Sodom. And that's where Melchizedek enters the scene. He appears to come to Abraham out of nowhere. He is the king of Salem, later to become Jerusalem. And the scene takes place in the nearby valley of Shaveh. Melchizedek brings with him bread and wine and pronounces a blessing on Abraham. And in response, Abraham returns to him a tenth of all his possessions. And then, mysteriously as he appeared, Melchizedek disappears 
into the midst of time, never to be heard of again, at least not till we get to Psalm 110. Well, now I have to say that this scene is one of the few in the Old Testament that never fail to bring shivers down my spine. It's up there with those three mysterious visitors who came to Abraham out of the blue later on uh, in the book of uh, Genesis as he stood at the entry of his tent. And it's up there with the fourth man who stood amid the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego inside King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And as I look at each of these scenes, I ask myself, could it be that, these, that what these men witnessed and what Abraham witnessed on that day in the valley of Shaveh was a foreshadowing of the eternal word, Jesus, who was God and who was with God from the beginning. Well, I'll leave it to you to come to your own conclusion. But back to Melchizedek. Our passage this morning tells us three things about him. And the first comes uh, in a translation of his name. It's a combination of the two Hebrew words, melech, which means king, and tzedek, which means righteousness. And put them together, and uh, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And as such, he points directly to Jesus. But before we go any farther, I want us just to ask the question, what does it mean to be righteous? Many people confuse righteousness, I'm afraid, with self-righteousness. And in reality, the two really couldn't be farther apart. Jesus put the lie to what masquerades as righteousness when he told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to pray one day in the temple. And you'll remember how the, strat the Pharisee strutted into the temple and parroted, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, I want to say, that's not righteousness. That is shameless, delusional pride. Several years ago, my brother, one of my brothers had new neighbors move in next door. And in an effort to be friendly, he went over and invited them into his home, over his, to his home for a barbecue. And he was taken back, aback by their response. Oh no, they said to him, we couldn't do that. Our church forbids us from sharing meals with other people. As Jesus' followers, we need to be so careful not to radiate that false brand of righteousness, the one that gives the impression that we see ourselves as better than other people. No, true righteousness is to be found in the tax collector who crouched in a shadowy corner of the temple where he was barely noticeable and not having the boldness even to lift up his eyes to look towards heaven, he murmured, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the truly righteous recognize their constant need of God's grace. The truly righteous seek to live in dependence upon him. 
And this is exactly what we see in Jesus, who said, my food is is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And again, we hear him say, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But we call Jesus righteous in a unique sense because he did what no other human being has ever done. He lived a life of perfect, uninterrupted communion with his Father. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. And in him, we're able to see all that it means to live in a relationship with God. Well, the second fact about Melchizedek that our passage this morning points us to is that he was king of Salem. And Salem in Hebrew is the same word as shalom, that beautiful word that means peace. My Bible dictionary informs me that the word shalom involves a much broader understanding than what you or I commonly mean by peace. It carries with it a notion of completeness, soundness, well-being, safety. And so it was that on the night before they were to face what would be their greatest trial, Jesus could comfort his followers with the words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And a few days later, as they gathered for fear of their lives behind locked doors, suddenly Jesus was in their midst. And again, with those familiar words, peace be with you. And today, Jesus comes to us, to you and to me, with those same words, peace be with you. Peace as we face tragedy and suffering. Peace as we run into broken relationships and conflict. Peace as we seek to negotiate the storms and the setbacks that are unavoidable part of life in a fallen world. And in all of those circumstances, Jesus is able not only to give us inner peace, he empowers us also to be makers of peace, to bring peace to others. After all, peace is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet there's more to it than that, infinitely more. The peace that Jesus gives in the here and now is only a foreshadowing of the real and lasting peace that he will bring with him when he ushers in the new creation. This is the peace that we read about in the prophets. Let me read to you from Isaiah. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. 
The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the picture of true peace that the Bible gives us. And it's a picture that never ceases to amaze me. And what a stunning contrast it is, I might say, to the images that we see daily in the news right now of of bombed out buildings and desperate refugees fleeing from Ukraine. But yes, Jesus does bring us peace as we lay our troubles before him. But the real peace he came to bring us is the shalom of the new heaven and the new earth, when all creation will thrive as it never has since the Garden of Eden in the light of his unending glory. And that is the vision of peace that calls and arouses you and me to be makers of peace in the here and now. And so, like Melchizedek, Jesus is the king of peace. But thirdly, Melchizedek was a great high priest. Abraham recognized this when he gave him a tenth of all that he had. We don't know what kind of sacrifices Melchizedek offered in his high priestly role, but we do know the sacrifice that Jesus offered, and that was his own life's blood poured out for you and for me on the cross. Words are not sufficient to describe what Jesus did for us on that first Good Friday. The closest I can find are from my Anglican prayer book when it speaks about what Jesus has done for us through his death as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Well, the letter to the Hebrews will have a good deal more to teach us about Jesus' eternal priesthood in in the succeeding chapters. I don't want to steal from what uh, preachers might be led to say in the Sundays that follow. Yet allow me to say that unlike Abraham's response to Melchizedek, we can't be satisfied with giving just a tenth, because Jesus demands our all. As he said to his first disciples, he says to you and me, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The apostle Paul said much the same thing a generation later when he wrote to the believers in Rome, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, switch now from the time of Abraham to the 20th century, to the year 1937, when the Nazi party had all of Germany in its oppressive grip. A young Dietrich Bonhoeffer sat down to put together a study on the Sermon on the Mount. He could not have known that eight years later, he himself would die as a martyr to Hitler's brutal regime. Nor could he have known how prophetic his words would be when he wrote, the cross 
is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As we focus our thoughts this morning upon Jesus, the King of righteousness, the King of peace, and our great high priest, the only response that comes to my mind is in the words of the hymn writer Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, what can we say in response? For all that you are and all that you have done for us. You are the king of righteousness. You are the king of peace. You are our eternal high priest. And we cannot begin or end our praise for you in any worthy manner. And yet we pray that you would help each one of us to give more and more of who we are to you until that final day when you appear in all your glory and all of creation will redound to your praise. Amen. <clears throat>